0: Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview.
1: Biblical. What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling.
2: Forty years of darkness. Earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the
1: grave. Human sacrifice. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough.
2: I get the point.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Brian Auton and I'm recording with Chad Gross. Greetings, Chad. How are you this week? Actually, I'm a lot better. I can talk which is super exciting,
1: man. That was so frustrating during that interview, not being able to talk to Holly and Doug. I tried, but I did not want anybody to have to listen to that. But uh, anyway, I thought the interview went great regardless. And because of course you had my back. But no, a week's gone well. You know, the morning of that interview that we did with Holly and Doug that morning, I actually got to do an atheist role play at Grand Point Church in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And man, that was so much fun. And I was so impressed with the students and the way that they engaged with me. I mean, I came at them pretty forcefully with the uh, argument from divine hiddenness, uh, massive theological confusion and uh, the problem of innocent suffering, or in other words, suffering that just seems pointless, if you will. And boy, it was such a it was such a great experience. And uh, Andy and his wife, Christy, are doing such a great job there at Grand Point. I just want to give a shout out to them and thank them for having me. But also what a great learning experience it was, uh, even for me. And then, of course, after I presented the arguments, they were allowed to question me as an atheist and then I stepped out of my role as an atheist, and we just talked about the arguments and why I think they ultimately
0: fail. So it was a lot of fun. Sounds challenging to try to present from the other side. Did you learn anything in doing it yourself?
1: Well, yeah, I
0: did a few things. First of
1: all, I, t- I told Andy, the one of the youth leaders there at, at Grand Point, that one of the things that I was going to do is that I wanted to present a fair a- a fair atheism and a high view of atheism, uh, the kind of atheism that if an atheist was sitting in the front row in the, in the youth room, that they would say, yeah, that was, that was fair. And so I did a lot of listening to numerous atheists, a lot of atheist debates, and I kind of drew their stories. For example, I used a bit of um, Alex O'Connor's hiddenness argument, the way that he presents it. I, I use that. So I drew on a lot of works of atheists who I think are trying to reasonably engage. But it also taught me that one of the things that I was really kind of surprised by is that a lot of times when those arguments, the ones I mentioned are addressed, a lot of times they're addressed from the perspective of kind of a generic theism, right? A theism that would be consistent with Judaism, Islam, or Christianity. And I came at it from the view of how does biblical Christianity address these arguments? I was actually really encouraged to see how many more tools are in the arsenal when you're willing to defend and stand on biblical Christianity versus a generic theism. And so that was extremely encouraging and, uh, of course, challenged me about my own apologetics
0: methodology. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about this before offline, but, you know, the idea of addressing the hiddenness of God, when you're just talking some generic philosophical manufactured idea, your idea of God that you came up with philosophically, you can knock it down pretty easy with the hiddenness of God argument because you can say, well, the God I'm talking about is a loving father who, who wouldn't, you were, your, if you're a loving father, you wouldn't hide yourself from your kids. And this yeah. is a perfect God who's a, your father. And he's hiding himself? Well, if you frame it like that, then that's not helpful. You know, it's hard to answer that when you don't have the tools of what the Bible says about God. Mm -hmm. And if you read through the New Testament, anybody thinking about ideas of hiddenness, just read through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus hides himself or hides his message or... Withdraws himself or says, Don't tell anybody who I am. Or he reveals himself to the apostles now, but not another time. Or right. things are, meanings are hidden, parables are used. He's hiding himself all the time for all kinds mm-hmm. of reasons. And he tells us the reasons a lot of times. And he tells us how to find him and the heart posture and the means by which we should seek him to find him. And um, so there mm-hmm. a lot of this hiddenness stuff goes away, in my view, when we mm-hmm. just say, Well, what's the Christian God like? Is he really hidden? Well, actually, yeah. he is. Can he be found? Yeah, actually, he can. So that's uh, my nutshell.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're basically arguing that this this idea that God is hidden far from being a problem for biblical Christianity. It's a- actually what we would expect in some cases and is consistent with biblical. Christianity.
0: Yeah, it's cooked in there. And, uh, you know, Ooh, I like
1: that cooked in there. I'm going to use that.
0: OK, our guest today, which uh, I'm excited to have back on the podcast, I've done a couple of interviews with him. And I think he was with us for Reasonable Faith Belfast when I was facilitating those meetings. Uh, oh, cool. But yeah, Paul Copan, he's a Christian theologian, analytic philosopher, apologist and author, currently a professor at the Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. And he holds the endowed Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics. That sounds like mm-hmm. something elvish. He is author of or editor of over 40 books, including, 40 books, man, including, wow, such works as Is God a Moral Monster? Is God a Vindictive Bully? The Rutledge Companion to Philosophy of Religion, The Naturalness of Theistic Belief, Creation Out of Nothing, Philosophy of Religion, Classic and Contemporary Issues, A Little Book for New Philosophers, and The Kalam Cosmological Argument. He's also contributed essays to over 50 books, both scholarly and popular, and he's authored a number of articles in professional journals. In 2017, he was a visiting scholar at Oxford University, and for six years he served as president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and he's also helped establish the new MA in Philosophy of Religion at Palm Beach Atlantic University, which also offers an undergraduate degree in apologetics. You can find out more about Paul Copan at paulcopan.com check the show notes for all the nice details there but yeah he's got some great books and some of the ones not mentioned in that little bio that are really helpful just for general apologetics questions chad you remember these they're they're going back for (laughs) a number of years here but there's one called true for you but not for me oh yeah Um, when god goes to starbucks which is a guide for everyday apologetics like conversations um there's one called that's just your interpretation Yes. Um, another one, how do you know you're not wrong? So all of the like, uh, gotcha questions that Christians could be presented with or hot button topics. He's basically written uh, so many books that deal with like multi chapters on various objections. So you might have 15 chapters with 15 different tough questions. So, you know, you can't go wrong in like stocking up <laughs> your library with Paul Copan books, these popular level ones as well, because they're really useful just general apologetics works so chad i know i've talked a lot here but there's a lot to cover but we're going to be interviewing paul today on his book which is pretty new is god a vindictive bully subtitle reconciling portrayals of god in the old and new testaments you know he's written a lot of stuff about what you might call old testament problems of evil or you could call like you know what's what's with all the violence in the old testament is old testament ethics Hey, you know, what should, how should we read that? How should we think about that? How is this problematic? Atheists are making moral judgments against God. I mean, that idea is God a vindictive bully. That's, that's right out of quote from Richard Dawkins saying the God Mm -hmm. of the Old Testament is the most terrible character of all fiction, you know? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. This book is a companion volume to, is God a moral monster?
1: And I think that Dr. Copan began writing about these topics particularly the old testament ethics issues when the new atheists were became in vogue because that that was one of uh, the points that you know hitchens and harris and dawkins and dennett and people like that would not so much dennett but those other three would would really harp on as, as kind of the old testament god and how he was this ruthless bully and and so this is kind of a companion volume to uh, the other two books that he's written, uh, I believe, as you said, is God a Moral Monster. And the other one is uh, Did God Command Genocide, who he co-wrote with Matthew Flanagan. And so, yeah, I, I'll i tell you, man, I, I've been really enjoying this. It, it addressed some topics that I had thought about but didn't really have time to dig into in regard to the Old Testament. And it just so happens that I'm reading through The Bible, um, a chronological study Bible that I have, and a lot of the issues that he addresses kind of I'm simultaneously reading through in scripture. And so uh, it's I I think it's a timely book. And uh, for me, it's been really helpful. I just had a guy at my church that I'm attending right now come to me and say that he has an atheist neighbor and the atheist neighbor told him that he walked away from the faith because of these Old Testament ethics types issues. And so I'm excited to get uh, this book and a, a couple other resources into his hands. And so I know that you and I have kind of tried to pick questions for Paul that will be advantageous to listeners and actually might apply to conversation. And so uh, hopefully everybody will get something out of it. One of the things that Ted Wright of Epic Archaeology, who we've had on the podcast before, he said that he likes to be aware of two or three different ways to make sense of these texts. And then when he is in conversation with people who struggle with them, or even you know, for Ted, he's speaking publicly. He he likes to just offer those different ways of reconciling the texts uh, and allow the the listener to make up their mind. And so Paul's way is one way to address it. And of course, we know that um, uh, another person we've had on the podcast, Clay Jones, has written on this. And and uh, so there are different ways of of making sense of them. But of course, what I appreciate, of course, about Paul's approach is that Paul has a high view of scripture and he tries to maintain that throughout interpreting the text. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't lower scripture in order to make God more comfortable. He actually is dealing with the God revealed in scripture and doesn't shy away from the tough texts. And so I really appreciate that.
0: Let's go to the interview.
1: Let's get ready.
2: Switch me on.
0: Paul Copan. Thanks for coming back on the podcast.
2: Most welcome. Glad to be with you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, super. Well, I'm going to jump right in here because I saw a comment on Twitter today, and it was a quote by a popular Christian apologist, and they said something along the lines of, you know, read the Bible to your kids and don't skip the hard parts. And there was just this flood of responses, mostly negative, and quick to basically jump in there, citing all these Old Testament scriptures that they found immoral, and many of them saying triumphantly, I read the Bible to my kids, and they became atheists. So, Paul, you've written a lot about Old Testament ethics and morality, what's going on with this mean Old Testament God, so to speak. So, after you've written a few books on this subject, would you say that being able to think carefully about the portrayals of God in the Old Testament is important?
2: Absolutely. And I think that if we don't speak to our children in ways that they can understand, and I'm, uh, in fact, I just was speaking at a conference in Denver uh, and a lady asked the question, I found these texts troubling. How do I read these to my kids? And so mm. I offered some some suggestions for how you go about uh, doing this sort of a thing. And so it's important. And I'm trying to do that as I'm unpacking a lot of these difficult texts and offering more of a context to make these sorts of things uh, more readily understandable for the layperson, including the layperson's child, uh, as, uh, as they go through some of these challenging uh, texts. Uh, and of course, if you read, uh, for example, if you read that, you know, we utterly destroyed them, well, it's good to know that that word doesn't mean utter destruction uh, it can mean simply exile it can mean uh, victory it can mean other things uh, you know th- and so it's it's good for us to know that to know that there were plenty of Canaanites that were left around uh, just keep reading a lot of people look on one side of the ledger and they say oh there were all the Canaanites were gone and you but you just keep reading the other side of the ledger and you say oh there are lots of Canaanites there and and the key issue was not the destruction of the Canaanites but it was the removal of Canaanite identity namely their idols and so forth, much like, say, in Nazi Germany, where the Allies destroyed all of those symbols and marks of Nazism, kind of defanged Nazism, and thus Germany's identity as a Nazi nation was removed, And but the people were largely in place in, in Germany. So I, I try to use those sorts of examples that give, uh, give a little bit more clarity to what's going on because, yeah, the language is using hyperbole i mean what what's going to happen in a thousand years when people read our sports pages and they say you know that team totally annihilated the other team uh, well uh, if you understand the genre if you understand that this is how our sports talk operates then you're not going to say wow that was such a cruel barbaric time back then and i'm not going to read any of this stuff to my children those headlines from a thousand years ago uh, so those are some things that I think are helpful to to note as we go into these texts. I'm not saying that I've removed all the difficulties. I'm not trying to say that. I'm trying to maintain a certain tension and not try to go to an extreme that kind of polishes everything up and makes everything look nice and tidy. I think that's a, that's a problematic approach, too. And I tackle some of those uh, challengers and challenges in my most recent book, Is God a Vindictive Bully.
0: Yeah, so sort of what I'm hearing you saying is there's no easy answers. There's no one certain answer, but there's a lot of options if you're thoughtful and careful, not just looking for a quick label to slap on a certain passage, for instance.
2: Exactly right. Yep. I'm trying to offer a broader context that makes these things more explanatorily evident. And uh, I think giving tools to people to help them navigate these difficult texts is, uh, I see that as a a part that I can play in this whole discussion. Excellent.
1: Yeah. And now having written a handful of books, as Brian said, done countless talks, I know you've done some debates. I just recently watched your recent debate on unbelievable with, um, Randall Rouser, which well done by the way. Thank you. Uh, And here you are writing another book about the God of the old Testament. Obviously you want to put tools in Christian's hands and, and also unbelievers who are trying to understand these texts and these may be stumbling blocks to them. Is that what keeps bringing you back to
2: this topic? Like, what what keeps you writing on this particular topic? Well, it's really—it began with a concern to address some of the outsiders' challenges to the Christian faith. And, of course, people like Richard Dawkins and some of the other new atheists were—after uh, September 11th were taking— Uh, taking shots at the God of the Old Testament. And as Richard Dawkins says, he's the most unpleasant character in all fiction, et cetera. And what I did was I just wrote an article uh, called Is Yahweh a Moral Monster, in which I pushed back on some of those accusations and challenges that the new atheists were raising. And I also uh, then in my book, Is God a Moral Monster? By the way, thanks Thanks, Richard Dawkins, for that title, and is God a vindictive bully too? So that was uh, so he's 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 helped me out a little bit here. I was going to say, uh, yeah, so. it's nice to see colleagues
1: working together.
2: You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but I also used the statements that these new atheists made about the Old Testament God as my chapter headings in the Moral Monster book. Right. So so I, I thought these are these are there are a lot of people who are being taken in by the new atheists. Of course, it's important that we engage ideas and the new atheists were raising certain questions that we ought to be grappling with. Of course, the problem with the new atheists is that they never listened to any of the responses. They just kept on saying the same old things, kind <sighs> of parroting the same old things without really engaging their critics. And and they were really severely faulted by their own atheistic colleagues uh, who, you know, like Michael Bruce, who said, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, makes me embarrassed to be an atheist. So so again, you see that even from within their own camp, there was a lot of pushback. Uh, so anyway, as I've gone on, uh, the the issue of warfare, quote, violence in the Old Testament, uh, kept on coming up. So I wrote a, co-authored a book with Matthew Flanagan called, in 2014, Did, Did God Really Command Genocide? And People, as I keep on speaking in places, I'm, I'm, you know, I'd say two-thirds to three-quarters of the time I'm speaking, I'm dealing with these Old Testament ethical challenges. And some of these questions come up and other ones come up. And so it just naturally led to a third book in the series. Uh, again, you know, is God a moral monster? Is God a, you know, did God really command genocide? Is God a vindictive bully? Spoiler alert, the answer is no to all of them. <laughs> but the, but, but in doing this, I've just expanded the topics that I'm addressing, but also there has been a new line of critics to step in, and they've had an increasingly loud voice. And in my Vindictive Bully book, I talk about the critics from without, like the new atheists, but also critics from within, uh, people like Greg Boyd and Eric uh, Seibert and so forth, who are making these claims about the textual God versus the actual God in the Bible, that Mm -hmm. when it says, thus says the Lord, Well, that's not necessarily the Lord speaking. That could just be the fallen ancient Near Eastern prophet or narrator who is twisting the message that God has for for that person and turning it into something violent and even demonic. So Greg Boyd says what looks God-fearing and God-honoring in the Old Testament could be demonic from a New Testament point of view. Of course, the New Testament doesn't at all look at it that way. It doesn't make this pit one against the other. Uh, it, it it simply takes those things in stride. It's not condemning, it's not distancing itself, it's not saying, oh, that was a textual god or some other form of distancing. In fact, Greg Boyd tries to really create a chasm between Moses and Jesus. And again, it just doesn't work. And I and, and it's, it tends to be a very selective way of treating these texts. And I, as I was reading Greg Boyd's 1,400-page book uh, is, um, you know, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. I kept on asking, now, what does he do with this text? What does he do with that text? I'd look at the index. Nope, 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 not there. Systematically, just, just dozens and dozens of texts that Greg Boyd does not touch that would sufficiently undermine his case so there's a lot of selectivity going on but yet a lot of mm-hmm. people are being taken in by this a lot of people in the church they're saying yeah greg boy he rocks and i'm saying no he's going he's taking us down a wrong path that needs to be challenged and so he's not reading the new testament he's not reading the old testament as the new testament interpreters themselves read it that there are severe texts that also need to be brought to the fore. In fact, Jesus is quite severe in the New Testament. And my key text, I'd say, is from Romans 11 22. It says, Behold then, the kindness and severity of God. Mm-hmm. And so, for the Old Test, for the, the critics from without, the new atheists, I emphasize that even though they emphasize the severity of God, I'm trying to show them that there is patience, kindness, love on the part of the Old Testament God that they fail to recognize. And then for the critics from within who emphasize the kindness, the love, what they call the cruciformity, uh, you know, that Jesus says, Father, forgive them from the cross. Well, that's of course not the only part of Jesus that we need to look at. We need to look at the totality of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And there is severity there. And so I want to emphasize that Jesus, yes, he is one who will not uh, break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, but he's also one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, that there is the wrath of the Lamb, and just to say, oh, that's all metaphorical in the Book of Revelation. Well, the metaphor doesn't take away from the severity. It doesn't take away from the reality of the indeed the, the terror of those who called on the rocks to, you know, in Revelation six, to fall upon them because of the the wrath of the Lamb. So I I try to uh, you know it, Rather than as as a friend of mine, Robertson McCulkin used to say, said uh, rather than going to a consistent extreme like the uh, like those who are part of the critics from within, I'm trying to stay at the center of biblical tension. Where okay, I'm not going to you know get rid of all of the difficulties or challenges, but I'm trying to stay squarely where those where the scriptures are affirming certain things, and I'm not going to try to lighten them up, or try to go, try to dismiss them. I'm going to try to be very uh, squarely facing them and try to bring all of these things together as best I can.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Two questions about Mm -hmm. sort of the critic within, so to speak. And the Mm -hmm. first one, I'm wondering, is there a fundamental issue of biblical reliability at the core of disagreements on how to reconcile Old Testament and New Testament portrayals of God? Well, perhaps it would be...
2: Yeah, I could lay out a little bit of the the terrain here. Uh, there are, of course, somebody like Greg Boyd doesn't hold to biblical inerrancy anymore. He uh, jettisoned that. Uh, he does say, however, that the Old Testament is all inspired, uh, and I'll come back to that. But he, but Eric uh, Eric Seibert says that he is an Old Testament scholar. Says that the Bible of the Old Testament is generally inspired, but not in all of its parts. So for example, those warfare texts, those are not, those are not for one thing, they're not historical. They're not true. They didn't take place. Um, and so he, but he doesn't see those as inspired texts. He sees those as texts of terror and so forth. Greg Boyd says, no, those are inspired texts, uh, they are not uh, describing the true God, the actual God. But he says that when Jesus appears, and of course on the cross uh, says, Father, forgive them, and the true heart of God is revealed, then we have, the, in a sense, the mask that God has donned in the Old Testament kind of hiding behind those texts where God looks demonic basically, where, you know, know, Greg Boyd would agree with the portrayals of the new atheists uh, about the God of the Old Testament. They would say, yeah, that is the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. That's a fictitious literary understanding, but that's not the true God. So there'd be Mm -hmm. an agreement, you know, there's, you know, racism, you know, know, ethnocentrism, there's, uh, you know, there's genocide, there's ethnic cleansing and so forth, but that's not the actual God. And so so, so that is a little bit of the background in terms of what they'd affirm looking at the scriptures. So it's not a matter of reliability here. Uh, it's more a matter you know, to some degree it is, but it's in the sense that you know those things took place and that they're accurately described, Greg Boyd would say, yes, that's true, but that's not revealing the actual God. And so, so that's part of part of the issue. And I'd say, well, as you read the New Testament, and this is part of the problem with these critics from within, they want to hold to a cruciform understanding of the the, the biblical text. That anything that doesn't conform to that narrow slice of Jesus' ministry, and especially his atoning death on the cross, that you know, when he says, "Father, forgive them," that don't know what they're doing. The, the problem here is, is that is too narrow a slice, but just doesn't even broaden out to understanding the larger ministry of Jesus. So uh, when we look at the words of Jesus in, you know, as I meant, as I've mentioned, there's a kind of there's severe texts as well. In Jude 5, for example, we read about how Jesus, it says, after he had delivered, again, that's in the in, the, in our best manuscripts, Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, destroyed those, who did not believe? Now you'd think, oh, the, the enlightened New Testament author would would tone those things down and it wouldn't ascribe those things to Jesus. But here it is a Christological reading of the the Old Testament text, and Jesus in the, is in the thick of severe judgments. We see that, of course, in the uh, again in Revelation two in red letters, uh, in the you know, in, when Jesus is talking about the Nicolaitans that he's going to make war on these false teachers, the Nicolaitans. Again, the same term that's used for the beast in Revelation 13 is going to make war against the saints. And and then Jesus goes on to talk about this false prophetess Jezebel. And he said he's going to cast her on a bed of sickness and put her through this great tribulation. And he is going to strike dead her followers. Again, very severe language here. And again, those are texts that Greg Boyd doesn't uh, doesn't engage with but I'm trying to again pr- broaden out what we see as the revelation of uh, of God in Jesus Christ and of course we would agree uh, John uh, John 14:9 the one who has seen me has seen the father but Greg Boyd has such a narrow parameter for that and we see that as we keep reading the new testament text that there's a much broader understanding of who Jesus is and that there is severity there. And so I do find it troubling that uh, that Greg then becomes kind of the arbiter of, well, how should we judge these texts? And well, it doesn't look like this cruciformity. And so therefore it must be the textual God rather than the actual God. And I'm saying, no, you've got to broaden your understanding of Jesus, See him as indeed severe involved even in those Old Testament judgments and, uh, and and I think modifying your understanding he even criticizes say Paul in the New Testament when he talks about the when he tells the Thessalonians that God is going to avenge those who have been violent toward them these mobs who have been risen up against the Thessalonians that God is going to avenge them well greg boyd says well Paul is appealing to to kind of he has this bloodlust this this desire to for God to avenge and so forth, and so he's blank. He's putting Paul in the same sort of a category that Paul is simply referring to the textual God here rather than the actual God. Or Peter when when uh, he strikes down Ananias and Sapphira like, by the power of the Spirit, <laughs> uh, and and but Greg Boyd says no, that's Peter. But you know, of course, it could be some demonic agent acting here. But Peter could also be misusing his apostolic power, that he is using it for you know, evil ends, that God wouldn't do that sort of thing. He wouldn't strike anyone dead. And so so there must be some other interpretation here for what is going on in Acts chapter 5. And I I and I, in my book, I talk about how, well, take a look at the other portions of the book of Acts. You see, interestingly, in Acts, you know, the, the phrase, the hand of the Lord. Think, well, the hand of the Lord in in Acts 13, 11, 31, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Well, you see, the hand of the Lord is involved in evangelism. We think, yes, wonderful, that's very positive. Well, in Acts chapter 13, Elamos, who opposes the gospel, uh, he is struck blind by the hand of the Lord. And in Acts chapter 12, right in between those two passages, We see the angel of the Lord delivering Peter from prison. But at the end of the chapter, uh, Herod is struck dead by that same angel of the Lord because of his boasting and and, and receiving the glory that God alone is due. So you see both of those, the kindness, the severity uh, in the book of Acts. And so to say, oh, that is Peter who is misguided, who is misusing his power. Well, just keep reading the book of Acts. You'll see that that's just not the case.
0: Yeah. Another question, and this applies to well, mostly the critics within, but also a little bit the critics without, and that's about our own moral intuitions. Sometimes mm-hmm. we're looking at the Bible and we were using our own moral judgments to question what, what's going on there. Uh, I'm wondering just how what role our own moral intuitions should play to guide us when we're, we're looking at things that are challenging in the Old Testament.
2: Right. Well, again, you mentioned earlier that there was the that I had this conversation with Randall Rouser on the Unbelievable program, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that this came up. You know, and of course, his book uh, Jesus Loves Canaanites that he appeals to these moral intuitions, and I'd say yes, these moral intuitions are a means through which we can come into contact with uh, the moral realm uh, that we can come into contact with. A you know and have access to a proper moral understanding of things doesn't mean that these intuitions are infallible, uh, but let me say a couple of things here and he pushed me on this uh, regarding the the battle of the Joshua in in Canaan, and one of my claims was and I, I confirmed this uh, with uh, with Richard Hess who's written a lot on this and has uh, has doubled down on this in fact that there were no civilians. Uh, you know, I mean, you have a, a, a somebody kind of a straight civilian like like Rahab, who is a, a tavern keeper uh, and a prostitute too. But basically, there is no—you don't have any indication of non-combatants being in these ci- these cities. Uh, and so, so he was saying, well, wasn't there one person? Well, I say, well, the the evidence is that there weren't any. And so, so, and, and again, I sent him, even sent him my correspondence from, from Rick Hess, and Rick Hess has since written a, uh, a book review uh, for, for, he's from Denver Seminary, so his own seminary has this book review posted on, uh, you know, on, on the issue of warfare in the Old Testament. And so he makes clear that there just weren't any civilians in these citadel administration centers in the land of Canaan. So again, the appeal to intuitions here is is irrelevant. Uh, but on the other hand, I point out pointed out that he and several others who are critics of, of mine would take different views on the moral intuition regarding God's command to Abraham in, X, in, in Genesis 22 regarding the sacrifice of Isaac. So you have someone like Kenton Sparks, who isn't sure whether God issued this command in Genesis 22. Uh, Greg Boyd says, no, God did issue this command, and he works it out in his own way, and I, I push back on some of those things. But, uh, but Randall Rouser himself says, no, God could not have commanded this. So whose intuition should we go with? Should we go with Greg <laughs> Boyd's? Should we go with Randall Rouser's? And I think it's important to keep in mind, too, that, there, yes, there are some things that God would not command, uh, we read a couple of times in the book of Jeremiah that when it comes to ritual infant sacrifice, God says that it neither I neither commanded it nor did it even enter my mind. In other words, there are some things that God would not command. There are some things, you know, if something is intrinsically evil, God would not command it. But right. when it comes to, say, uh, the command regarding Isaac, A couple of things we need to keep in mind here. So again, generally, our intuitions are guides to a moral understanding, but it doesn't mean that some of them could not be overridden in, for example, a case of supreme emergency, like a a plane that is hijacked and a a president or prime minister uh, says, shoot the plane out of the sky, even though it is going to be killing innocent men, women, and children on board but the overriding concern is that it's going to be a weapon of mass destruction to destroy thousands of people and so the president makes that judgment call now when it comes to the issue of uh you know we can talk about even an ectopic pregnancy where there is a a fertilized egg but it's not implanted in the uterus but it's trapped in the fallopian tube and uh, again it's a tragedy it's not as though this is a normal procedure but unless we uh, unless that little life is taken. And again, we would regard it as precious and, 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 uh, and sacred. We would also say that we would desire to save the life of the mother because if nothing is done, both the unborn as well as the mother would die. And so it is one of those tragedies. And again, it's, so it's not as though our moral framework is somehow shifted because we have this overriding issue. Uh, that we need to address it simply illustrates that this is an exception it's a case of supreme emergency so we have that at a at a human level we can understand that and uh, my my friend Matthew Flanagan in in our book did God really command genocide goes into a lot of excellent detail on this but in all schools like all philosophical schools uh in in ethics you will have exceptions for even the taking of innocent human life, that there may be circumstances in which that is morally permissible. Well, all the more so for God, who does not live by moral rules, but understand that God himself is intrinsically good. It's not as though he say, issues commands and therefore has to live by them. No, those commands come from an already intrinsically, supremely valuable being. So when he acts, when he commands, he is commanding something that is good, that is wise, that is for certain purposes to be accomplished. And and so it's important for us to understand that those moral intuitions have a certain role to play, but there may be instances, I'm not saying that any intuition that we have is automatically going to be, can, can, can be reversed. And, you know, as we said, the God says that there are certain things that he would not command because this is intrinsically evil. So so I'm trying to put all of these things into a proper moral framework. And it's interesting, too, that Randall Rouser appeals to, say, Jay Budziszewski, a a moral and political philosopher. And Jay Budishevsky talks about, uh, you know, he wrote a book called The Revenge of Conscience, uh, talked about what we can't not know in another book, and talks about the role of conscience. And of course, he appeals to these moral intuitions and such. And I actually wrote to him and I said, now, what what are your what is your take on the Canaanites and 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 how this plays in with our moral intuitions? He said, well, I've actually written about this uh, in in my commentaries on the law, on on laws, in Thomas Aquinas, and Thomas Aquinas himself allows for certain overriding exceptions commanded by a good, wise, uh, all-knowing God uh, when it comes to the Canaanites, that this is ordinarily not to be done, but there may be overriding reasons that God has for commanding something and so Thomas Aquinas, J. Budziszewski, who goes by these, you know but you know who who recognizes conscience, recognizes intuitions and so forth, that the weight of revelation is something that is very clearly in play here, and that there may be certain intuitions you know, forced under certain conditions that may that that have the greater weight. Uh, Because of God's purposes, God's goodness, God's knowledge, knowing certain things that we do not. And so I try to put some of those things in their proper context as well in my book, Uh, Is God a Vindictive Bully?
1: Yeah, very helpful. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was thinking, and you mentioned this in the book, um, both on the scholarly and popular level, you know, all this... All this work, Paul, you know, going through these Old Testament texts and trying to read them in their ancient context, it seems like a lot of work. Why don't we just unhitch the Old Testament from the New? Uh, you know, after all the Old Testament's just a stumbling block to many. It can, it, you know, could potentially lead to harmful acts. You mentioned in the book, one thinker even suggests disregarding the Old Testament commands and simply following Jesus's command to love. And so is that a mistake? I'm, I'm guessing you're going to say yes. And I'm just wondering why. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, I do spend a, a good bit of time on those charges. And I uh, try to highlight that unhitching the from the Old Testament, unhitching the New Testament from the Old Testament. Right. Is just the opposite of what the New Testament authorities are doing. They're frequently connecting to the Old Testament. They are not ashamed of the Old Testament. In fact, I cite one one author uh, um, who is uh, who, who basically says and and, and, uh, and, she, and she says she opposes this sort of an unhitching. And she says this actually starts to look like anti-Semitism, no, she's very again, very oh, wow. uh, Fleming, Fleming yeah. Rutledge. She's saying, mm. "No, this is this is the stuff of." I mean, I mean, I don't want to read into her, but you know, I think that part of the problem, and Yaroslav Pelikan talks about this in his book, uh, the you know Jesus through the centuries, where uh, what happened in Nazi Germany. No people's, you know, people's, you know, light bulbs go off and people are you know getting a little upset, but Yaroslav Pelikan, a very principled. A historian of theology says that the you know, it was precisely because you have the some you know indeed the church itself, the Gentile Church detaching itself from Jesus who is the Messiah uh that Jesus is the one who is embedded Im- within this world shaped by the old Testament, uh, that we have forgotten that this is, you know, uh, you know, Yeshua, uh, Ben Yosef, uh, and, and, you know, again, Mary is, the name is Miriam. Uh, and, and that Jesus, in, in fact, he has a picture in Jesus through the centuries, a painting, uh, you know, by Mark Chagall and it's called white crucifixion. And you have here Jesus you know, on the cross and he has this, uh, this white, uh, uh, you know, prayer cloth around his waist, and it's the the Hebrew, uh, you know, prayer cloth. And in the background, you have "quote unquote" Christians going into synagogues, burning synagogues. Uh, you know, you see Jewish people uh, fleeing from you know from these synagogues because of these pogroms that uh, that that so called Christians are engaging in. And and again, he brings up Nazism. He brings up these pogroms, and he says. If only those in Christendom had realized the Jewish context, that we're that our Messiah, that our Savior is Jewish, that there is this Jewish context, and Mark Chagall is really illustrating this. Here, you've got the Jewishness of Jesus represented on the cross, and the problem is that people are detaching, unhitching Jesus from that setting, which has actually led to so many challenges, historical atrocities, and so forth, we need to actually keep them close together and recognize that it was the Jewish faith that has given birth to the Christian faith, that Jesus came out of that world. And so we ought to affirm it rather than to suppress it or unhitch it. And so I would I would say that there, as you read the Old Testament and then the New, you realize that there's a lot of moral carryover, and I use that term over over, over and over again, that It's not as though you just drop things off, but that you know, even though we're not under the Sinai covenant, no circumcision, food laws, and so forth, there is still a, a large kind of the moral fabric of the Old Testament is carried on over into the new. And so even, for example, uh, you know, in in the book of James, it borrows from the book of Leviticus in terms of paying your workers before the end of the day, lest their cries ascend to the Lord of hosts and so forth. Again, basically, I'm kind of quoting from uh, the book of Leviticus or Paul in Leviticus 18 and 20 using you know, he's borrowing terms from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, when he's talking about homosexuality, he's utilizing, he's, he's actually creating a new term based on the sexuality laws in Leviticus 18 and is showing that there is a moral carryover regarding the the, the sexual, you know, sexual identity, regarding sexual behavior, uh, and of course, rooting so much into creational ethic as well. So so rather than detaching we see that there's a lot more connection and so my book tries to emphasize that there is a continuity a moral continuity, even though there's some things that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and are no longer carried forward, uh, that that we are under a new covenant, of course. Uh, so, but but again, there are significant difference. There, there, while there are significant differences that we're no longer we're not a nation as the people of God, etc., uh, there is still a, a, a moral continuity that that binds us together with the people of the Old Testament.
0: Hmm. that's super helpful. I have a question, uh, and that's. And I was really happy that you dealt with this in your book, uh, Paul. It's got a vindictive bully. Um, what you deal with in there is uh, something. It's called an imprecatory psalm, which are psalms in which the author is which the author is expressing some prayer or wish, uh, usually upon his enemies of their downfall or cursing or death. And hence, chapter seventeen in the book is entitled "Bashing Babies Against the Rock," uh, alluding to Psalm one thirty seven. So, uh, Paul, if we're reading carefully, how do we process these sorts of scriptures, what we might call imprecatory psalms? Do we just say, hey, you know, these psalmists were having a really bad time and this is them venting. Just (laughs) let them vent. Or, you know, how do we we, uh, process those?
2: Yeah. Well, a a few things. Uh, One point that I make is that there is this continuity with the Old Testament when it comes to the... Uh, the covenant that God has with His people, and also the uh, the promise that God will render to every person according to His deeds. So, so even when, for example, Saul is persecuting Christians, Jesus says to him, "Saul, why are you persecuting me?" There is this identification of Jesus with His new covenant community, and that is a carryover from those themes in the Old Testament where God identifies with His people that He will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them uh, now uh, when it comes to the the question of uh, these the psalmist well how do we interpret say a, a text like psalm 137 well i give it actually several uh, potential interpretations uh, some will interpret this as simply the psalmist is speaking out of white hot emotion and so when he talks about uh, blessed is the one who dashes your children against the rocks uh, that's something that is simply uh, a, a, a kind of a vehemence, like like you want to strangle someone who tries to seduce your your teenage daughter or or sell drugs to your kids. Uh, yeah, you want to do physical harm, which some, kind of sounds like it'd be better to have a, a millstone hung around that person's neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea, as Jesus says in Matthew eighteen six. <laughs> yeah. And so you do have these sorts of. Fierce defenses of the people of God, uh, but but again, back to Psalm one thirty seven. Uh, the who are these children? Well, again, this could simply be hyperbole. That this is n- nothing more than uh, an exaggerated language, like uh, even the, like something figurative, like the trees of the field clapping their hands. Uh, no one takes that with uh, with literalness, and no one, uh, like John Salehammer, the Old Testament scholar, says no one would take this literally uh, as as being something that would be carried out. On the other hand, you do have the the law of, of recompense the that God renders to everyone according to his deeds. And keep in mind that in, in Isaiah 13, you have the Babylonians doing this very thing to people of, of, of dashing babies uh, against the rocks, as it were. And so what the psalmist here is saying, Lord, do to them as they have done to us or as they have done to others. Uh, again, and, and, and again, who are, the, who are these children? Well, according to some interpreters, they're not you know, this is the we're talking about the daughter of Babylon, that is the the, the, per, the this is the, the empire, the Babylonian Empire. So these are just little children. These are actually more like either the the, the royal house or soldiers who carry out these deeds of atrocity but in either case it's a prayer for God to bring an end to the ongoing tyranny and oppression so there's again several interpreters who who treat these imprecatory psalms that way but keep in mind too that the imprecatory psalms continue into the New Testament that we have several examples of imprecatory psalms in you know two of them are quoted in Acts 1 uh, you know, let you know, let his place be made desolate, let another take his office, etc. Uh, that we we also see this in in Romans chapter 11, where where Paul utilizes an in, imprecatory in psalm, uh, Psalm 109, etc. So we we it's not as though that discontinues. There is a less of an emphasis on curse and more on blessing, but it's not as though curse somehow disappears. We see curse or woe being expressed even with Jesus in Matthew 23. Woe to you. Woe is is parallel to the language of, of, of curse. In the in in old, various Old Testament passages, so Jesus Himself he curses the fig tree and so forth, and he says, "Depart from me, you are accursed." In Matthew twenty five, so curse does not disappear. And in fact, as uh, John Golden Gay, a no- noted Old Testament scholar, says, that in other, in some parts of the world where people are being, uh, where Christians are being, uh, you know, w- you know where where they're being cursed, where 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 demonic uh, powers are being invoked to uh, to harm. Christians, these imprecatory psalms are often a great point of encouragement and strength. For these Christians in those places where they're in the thick of spiritual warfare. So, so again, there's a place for these sorts of things. And N.T. Wright says uh, the the imprecatory psalms remain with us, and they remain relevant precisely because we haven't gotten the problem of evil licked. We're still living mm. in a fallen world, and that there that and, and he says some people are just so evil that you have to pray God's judgment upon them. Mm. I was wondering.
1: After doing so much work on the topic of Old Testament ethics, my, I have a, a gentleman that I'm friends with that I go to church with, and he has a neighbor who is an atheist, and the neighbor told him that the, one of the key reasons he walked away from God, or I'm um, not sure if he was a Christian, but the, one of his big stumbling blocks is this idea of a, kind of a harsh, unjust Old Testament God. Uh, like, it, you know, reminded me of the God that you mentioned from the Far Side cartoon in the book with the smite button. And uh, and so that's kind of his view of God. And, and I can't help but wonder, what would you say to someone like that who's who's walked away from their faith because they have this view of God as the smiter, if you will? Uh, what would be kind of your encouragement or direction? And obviously we would point them to your books, but what would kind of be the first, you know, first few things you'd say to them?
2: Right. Well, well, I, I think it's, it's interesting to note that, uh, yeah, some people will read those texts and say, wow, that's, that's difficult. And, and and again, I'm not trying to say, oh, if you just read my books, all the problems are going to go away. Uh, I, I, I think a lot of Issues are given a proper context, and I think some of the weightiness of, of some of these issues, I think, is lifted as we come to understand things in their proper covenantal context, their ancient Near Eastern context, their exegetical context, as we unpack those scriptures uh, and look more closely at those texts. so And, and people have you know, repeatedly written to me, I mean, just so many Gracious emails, who and call, phone calls and conversations where people say, "Your material has really helped to keep me in the faith. Uh, mm-hmm. It has really been useful for me." So, uh, so a, again, uh, the books have been helpful, and I think a lot of times the way you go about addressing these kinds of questions can, you know, the stance that you take will obviously affect how you, uh, you know, will, whether you give the benefit of the doubt, whether you'll be charitable in your reading of the text, or if you're going to be, if you're going to say, sorry, doesn't match up to my own standards, standards which have likely been shaped by the biblical faith themselves. But, (laughs) uh, uh, but, but at any rate, I try to, uh, to highlight that, you know, when it comes to the law of Moses, that we recognize that the law of Moses, though it is good, it is not perfect legislation. And that Jesus says in Matthew 19:8 that Moses permitted certain things because of the hardness of human hearts. And we recognize that where, uh, when God is stepping into the world, as John Golden Gay says, he gets his he gets his hands dirty to a certain degree. Uh, mm. It's not as though he steps into a pristine utopian world, and uh, and and continues to guide uh, enlightened, well, you know, um, sanctified people along. Uh, he's dealing with a lot of messiness in the ancient Near East. Uh, has a lot of messiness, has a lot of cultural assumptions, uh, a lot of there's a lot of brokenness that needs to be addressed, but God meets his people where they are, but also sends them sets them in a redemptive direction. So even as I mentioned, the the laws that differentiate the Israelites from the uh, you know from say surrounding nations, I think are a are an indication of God's redemptive, Activity that he's that he's elevating the level of what is expected of the people of God than what you see in the surrounding nations, and so uh, so rather you know rather than comparing uh, Israel to say what is going on in the revelation of Jesus, there's a progressive revelation there, of course, but but you also see that the there is a continuity between both of those testaments, and that God is working with the people where they are and that the Israelites are to be, as Deuteronomy says, that they are to be an example through their law uh, of what it is to be a wise and understanding people. So God is giving them an elevated uh, law collection, a set of instructions and so forth by which they are to live so that people around them will see how wise they are. And so I try to bring those sorts of things out in the book and and, and highlight that, you know, and, and I think even when it comes to issues such as slavery. Well, Hmm. slavery is a poor translation. And a lot of people readily think of the colonialism and the antebellum South and so forth. And that is a far cry from what we see going on in the Old Testament. But yet a lot of people will make those associations and they will be unrelenting. It's not as though they're saying, oh, that's not what slavery was like in the the scriptures. And in fact, as I, I point out that S- slavery is a misleading term and should not be used mm-hmm. because of all the emotion that it conjures up. But yet people, they hear these things, they hear these sound bites and uh, and and so often dismiss the scriptures without giving them a proper hearing within uh, this broader context and and also just understanding that it is a much different issue in, you know, servitude is a much different issue than what we have going on in, in our modern world. So, so anyway, those are a few examples of how I try to point people in the right direction, but right. read, read the stuff that I've written, uh, maybe summarize some things for them and, uh, and see where things go from there.
0: Thank you. Super helpful. Paul, our time has flown. And, uh, before we go, I. Uh, Wanted to just to ask you where you might point people to your work online. We've told them about polcopan.com. Are there any other resources that you'd want to point them to along this line?
2: Sure, I appreciate that. Well, of course, uh, you're always welcome to come and join us at our uh, at our at at Palm Beach Atlantic University, where I teach. We've got an undergrad in a Christian apologetics. We've also got a graduate program, an MA in philosophy of religion. We've got uh, terrific uh, professors who are part of that team. And uh, preparing people to be engaged in the public square, uh, equi- equipping them to uh, to to carry out these uh, this understanding of scripture, to, uh, under to to have a high view of scripture, uh, an evangelistic spirit. Uh, but also to be well-equipped when it comes to uh, to philosophical uh, adroitness. So if you want to come and join us, come to Palm Beach Atlantic University. We'd love to have you with us. And again, if you're interested in my books there at Amazon, you can see some of the stuff that I've got uh, at my website, as has been mentioned. Uh, but uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with you all. And uh, thanks so much for the opportunity to, uh, to, to speak on these topics. Yeah, thank Super. You so much.
0: Well, listeners, uh, go to the show notes for all the quick links to all the good resources. And the book in particular that we want to point you to today is Is God a Vindictive Bully? Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and New Testaments by Paul Copan. Uh, Again, linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of Apologetics resources at Apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's Apologetics stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening. (laughs) We'll <laughs>